Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast that looks at how film and television use history to talk about today. My name is Leah Parody. And my name is Brian Krim. historians who watch a lot of movies and TV. And whenever stuff is said in the past, we can't help but notice that whatever is going on when the film was made seems to show up on the screen too. That's why we borrowed a line from Napoleon for the title of our podcast. He complained that the world wouldn't really know his story because his enemies would tell lies about him. But we're always trying to make sense of our own world by telling versions of history that make the most sense or offer the most comfort. Our own lies agreed upon. So Napoleon was right, but he was also a narcissist. He also wasn't short, by the way. That was also one of those lies. Anyway, uh, we assume that there are a lot of people who love TV and movies and history, just like us. And we've created this podcast with those people in mind. Sometimes the connections between the history and the here and now can be fairly obvious. But a lot of it goes unnoticed or misunderstood. And this is where we come in. We hope to entertain and inform, while we also amuse ourselves. In the aftermath of 9-11, many Americans were asking, how did we get here? Why did so many people, particularly in the Middle East, think of America as the evil empire? Did we deserve this? Many people couldn't understand where the hatred of America came from. And the methods of the terrorists seemed to come out of nowhere. Into the breach stepped Steven Spielberg, Mike Nichols, and Ben Affleck. Spielberg's Munich, released in 2005, Mike Nichols' Charlie Wilson's War, released in 2007, and Ben Affleck's 2012 Argo all take up these questions. All three of these movies challenged two established stories that Americans told themselves after 9-11, that the United States was an innocent victim of terrorist violence that really came out of nowhere, and that revenge for the attacks would be a productive use of American might. And so those are the films we're going to be looking at at this episode. We start, as always, with a short recap of the plots. Munich is directed by Spielberg and written by longtime collaborator Tony Kushner, along with Eric Roth and George Jonas, author of Vengeance, the book that inspired the story. The cast is impressive and international. Eric Bana, Daniel Craig, Kieran Hines, Jeffrey Roche, and Mathieu Almeric, among others. Munich is the story of the secret Israeli operation targeting 11 PLO operatives linked to the 1972 massacre of Israeli athletes at the Munich Olympics. It opens with the events of the hostage-taking, but cuts away before the tragic endpoint, which Spielberg returns to later in the film. We are then introduced to Eric Bana's character, Avner Kaufman, whose story the movie is based on. He was a Mossad operative and Mossad asks him to quit so that they can have deniability while he joins a shadow group of assassins brought together from the Jewish diaspora. One is Belgian, another South African, and so on. Their handler, played by Jeffrey Rush, gives them the targets. 
The mission takes them all over Europe and even Lebanon, drawing them into the shadowy world of Euro-terrorism and Cold War shenanigans. Each of the increasingly gruesome assassinations also claim increasing civilian collateral damage. In between these hits, Avner and his colleagues debate the morality and perhaps more importantly, the effectiveness of their actions. Every PLO casualty seems to result in an even more extreme replacement. Over time, other members of the group are killed, and it also becomes clear that various governments have their own agendas, in some cases thwarting the assassination attempts. For example, a Mossad target might also be a CIA asset. Also, Avner starts to wonder if he's being used to kill targets that have nothing to do with Munich. If so, does that make him just a cold-blooded assassin instead of a righteous avenger? After a series of setbacks, Avner abandons the mission to be with his family in Brooklyn, seemingly turning his back on the eye-for-an-eye mentality of fighting terrorism. The final exchange between Avner and his handler on a park bench in New York is set against the backdrop of the World Trade Towers. Let's listen to a clip of Avner when the Israeli is on the job, pretending to be a German radical to get close to his target. He's exchanging perspectives on the Arab-Israeli conflict with an unsuspecting PLO member named Ali. You are Arabs. There are lots of places for Arabs. You're a Jew sympathizer. All you Germans, you're too soft on Israel. Well, you give us money, but you feel guilty about Hitler. And the Jews exploit that gift. My father didn't gas any Jews. Tell me something, Ali. What? Do you really miss your father's olive trees? Do you honestly think you have to get back all that? That nothing? That chalky soil and stone hearts? Is that what you really want for your children? It absolutely is. It will take a hundred years, but we'll win. How long did it take the Jews to get their own country? How long did it take the Germans to make Germany? And look how well that worked out. You don't know what it is not to have a home. That's why you European Reds don't get it. You say it's nothing, but you have a home to come back to. ETA, ANC, IRA, we all pretend we care about your international revolution, but we don't care. We want to be nations. Home is everything. So this is interesting because in this clip, Ali is preaching national liberation ideology, mocking the Reds' international revolution as a luxury that only those who already have a home uh, can afford. It's a good distillation of the Palestinian perspective, and it's also a reminder that Jews in the British Mandate of Palestine back in the years before the formation of the State of Israel, believed similar things during their quest for national liberation. It really is an interesting clip, and we'll return to, uh, to you know, how Palestinians are portrayed uh, later on in the podcast. But let's move on to Argo. Argo is directed by Ben Affleck and written by Chris Terrio. It's also based on the book The Master of Disguise by Tony Mendez, the CIA officer portrayed by Affleck. It's produced by Affleck, uh, Grant Heslov, and George Clooney. The cast also includes some wonderful performances by Alan Arkin, John Goodman, Victor Garber, 
Brian Cranston, and a host of other notable faces and names. Set in the chaotic months of the Iranian Revolution of 1979 and the subsequent storming of the U.S. Embassy, Argo is the story of the daring and improbable rescue of six American embassy officials forced to hide in the Canadian ambassador's residence. Like Spielberg, Affleck feels the need to provide a quick overview of the historical background. Affleck is very explicit about how the causes of the events his audience is about to see unfold. Let's take a listen to that now. In 1950, the people of Iran elected Mohammad Mossadegh, a secular Democrat, as prime minister. He nationalized British and U.S. petroleum holdings, returning Iran's oil to its people. But in 1953, the U.S. and Great Britain engineered a coup d'etat that deposed Mossadegh and installed Reza Pahlavi as Shah. The young Shah was known for opulence and excess. The people starved. The Shah kept power through his ruthless internal police. An era of torture and fear began. He then began a campaign to westernize Iran, enraging a mostly traditional Shiite population. In 1979, the people of Iran overthrew the Shah. The exiled cleric Ayatollah Khomeini returned to rule Iran. It descended into score settling, death squads, and chaos. Dying of cancer, the Shah was given asylum in the U.S. The Iranian people took to the streets outside the U.S. Embassy, demanding that the Shah be returned, tried, and hanged. So after that really quick and dirty historical survey, the live action then begins with the day that the student protesters breach the outer walls of the American embassy compound and take it over, starting the 444 days of the American hostage crisis. A few lowly functionaries working in the passport and visa building are able to escape out a door to the street because their building has an exterior access for Iranians who come applying for visas. They eventually take shelter in the residence of the Canadian ambassador. In Washington, government and intelligence officials start trying to figure out how to get them out. After a lot of back and forth, trying to figure out the least worst idea, Mendez manages to convince his superiors that the only viable plan is to pose as a Canadian production team for a fake science fiction film called Argo and to fly right out of Tehran International Airport under the gaze of the Revolutionary Guard. Back in Hollywood, meanwhile, John Goodman, playing a special effects guy who's worked with Mendez before, recruits Alan Arkin, a director, uh, to pretend that he's making the movie. The rest of the film flips back and forth between Hollywood, where the setup is underway, and Tehran, where Mendez tries to get buy-in from the humble office workers who suddenly have to learn cover stories and are understandably scared to death. Meanwhile, the radical paranoid phase of the revolution is raging outside the Canadian residence gates, and the ineffectual officials in Washington keep wanting to throw in the towel and just abandon the whole thing. The uncertainty, of course, goes down to the wire as Mendez forces his superior's hand by going ahead with the exfiltration and the final pieces of the cover story come through just as he is leading the six embassy workers through the airport. 
The plane takes off, despite revolutionary guards speeding down the runway, trying to overtake the plane. The captain announces when they clear Iranian airspace, and they are free. The film ends with comparison photos of the real events and people so that the audience can appreciate Affleck's attention to detail and accuracy and be reminded that, however improbable it seems, this caper really happened. Among other things, Munich and Argo both grapple with the legacy of past events, but neither do it as explicitly as our third movie, Charlie Wilson's War. Charlie Wilson's War is loaded with big names and talent. Directed by Mike Nichols and written by Aaron Sorkin, Charlie Wilson's War is based on the book of the same name by veteran CBS journalist George Kreil. The cast is amazing. Tom Hanks, Julia Roberts, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Emily Blunt, Ned Beatty, Rizwan Manji, Ampuri Azia, and even John Slattery, who plays a Roger Sterling type of character, but not nearly as likable. The film is the story of how an obscure Texas congressman spearheaded the now famous or infamous effort to arm Afghan rebels in their bloody war with the invading Soviet Union. The film has Sorkin's familiar blend of humor, idealism, and optimism about what government can accomplish. However, Charlie Wilson's War is also pretty direct about America's standard operating procedure of breaking things without cleaning them up afterwards. It opens with Hanks as Charlie Wilson naked in a hot tub with a friend and a few buxom starlets. Wilson sees coverage of the Afghan war on a bar TV and is distracted. This movie doesn't start with a history lesson for its viewers like Argo. Uh, we start out as ignorant as Wilson is. He becomes intrigued by what is developing in Afghanistan. A wealthy, rabidly anti-communist, evangelical Texas socialite and sometimes lover of Good Time Charlie named Joanne Herring seizes on his interest because she wants to help the Afghans eject the godless communists. And Charlie has the luck to get a tenacious, effective, and unorthodox CIA agent answer his request for an intelligence briefing on the matter. Played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, Gust Avrakotos is as much an outsider to this CIA as Tony Mendez is to Argos. The rest of the movie follows Wilson, Herring, and Avrakotos as they quietly procure the funding for a covert war. This is enabled by Wilson's committee memberships on the kinds of classified military defense subcommittees that don't have to disclose their budgets or their appropriation decisions. Once in possession of the funds, Wilson and Avrakotos find the appropriately apolitical arms dealers who will provide the weapons that the Afghans need to shoot down Soviet air power. The U.S. aid budget for Afghanistan goes from $5 million to $2 billion. But once the war is won, the Soviet Union retreats and collapses. The U.S. government loses interest really fast. Wilson can't even get those same committees to keep enough funding to build the Afghans some schools. But all those weapons are still there, left behind for another fight. The audience knows that Osama bin Laden will find refuge in the failed state, and now also knows that the Mujahideen that Wilson helped arm will eventually become both the Taliban and the Northern Alliance he resisted. For all its humor and feel-good moments, Charlie Wilson's war is best summed up by Charlie Wilson's own quote ending the film. These things happened. They were glorious, and they changed the world. And then we fucked up the endgame.
Let's listen to Gust warning Charlie about what's to come. We know because we're living with the consequences of abandoning Afghanistan and always finding military solutions to humanitarian problems. Listen, not for nothing, but, but, but do you know the story about the Zen master and the little boy? There's a little boy. On his 14th birthday, he gets a horse. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful, the boy got a horse. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Two years later, the boy falls off the horse, breaks his leg, and everybody in the village says, how terrible. And the Zen master says, we'll see. Then a war breaks out, and all the young men have to go off and fight, except the boy can't because his leg's all messed up. And everybody in the village says, how wonderful. And the Zen master says, we'll see. So you get it. No. No, no, because I'm stupid. You're not stupid. You're just in Congress. Send them money. You can start with the roads, move on to the schools, factories. Now it's a party. Restock the sheep herds. Hey, give them jobs. I'm give trying. them hope. I'm trying. Yeah, we'll try I'm, harder. I'm fine for every dollar. Yeah, yeah. I took you from five million to a billion. I broke the ice on the sting in the Milan. I got a Democratic Congress in lockstep behind a Republican president. Well, that's not good enough, because I'm going to hand you a code word classified NIE right now, and it's going to tell you that the crazies have started rolling into Kandahar like it's a fucking bathtub drain. Jesus, Gus, you could depress a bride on the wedding day. Hey, listen to what I'm telling you. So you can see how Sorkin is drawing a direct link between what the U.S. did then, what happened on 9-11, and what the situation was in Afghanistan when the movie was made. So in each episode, we'll remind listeners what was going on when these writers, directors, and producers decided to make the movies. Again, the way we've summarized the films has probably provided some of that review already. For this episode, we have two different moments to describe, although they are definitely related. In 2004, CBS got hold of photos that showed evidence that U.S. soldiers were torturing Iraqis in the Abu Ghraib prison in Iraq. Soon after, the first of a series of torture memos was leaked, showing that as early as 2002, the administration was seeking legal justification for the use of torture. Although Abu Ghraib was treated as an outlier event, it turned attention to enhanced interrogation techniques, a euphemism for torture, and the existence of black ops sites around the world, where U.S. operatives acted outside U.S. and international law. Let's play a CBS News clip detailing the controversy surrounding the revelation that Abu Ghraib, this infamous uh, prison, was actually the result of U.S. policy. This report shows the direct connection between the policy decisions and legal opinions made here in Washington and the abuses that we saw at Abu Ghraib. July 2002, Pentagon General Counsel William Haynes requests information on coercive methods used to train American pilots in case of capture to resist interrogation techniques such as slapping, stress positions, and waterboarding, which was once prosecuted as a war crime. December 2002. Defense Secretary Rumsfeld signs a memo approving many of the techniques, but not waterboarding, against suspected al-Qaeda operatives held at Guantanamo. Rumsfeld subsequently rescinds that memo, but that does not stop the same techniques from showing up in Afghanistan. Again, relying on the outdated Rumsfeld memo, the command in Iraq adopts interrogation techniques, which one general said appeared to condone depravity and degradation rather than humane treatment of detainees. And David, the CIA was doing its own interrogations. How were they different? 
Well, the CIA was the only organization that actually used waterboarding. And documents released today by the Senate Intelligence Committee make clear that was done with the full knowledge and approval of the White House. Then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice personally gave then-CIA Director George Tenet the go-ahead. And along with that, the prison at Guantanamo Bay was also under increasing scrutiny, as was the civilian kill rate in both Iraq and Afghanistan. All in all, in Bush's second term, there was a lot of discussion about and discomfort with America's abandonment of its own principles and the law in the name of national security. Here's a clip from Al Jazeera about the Kafkaesque nightmare that was, is, Guantanamo Bay. More than 770 prisoners were eventually sent to Gitmo, first from secret CIA sites around the globe, many undergoing what even some Bush administration officials described as torture. They included the alleged key plotters of the September 11th attacks who were to be prosecuted before special military commissions, but which have yet to try or convict any of them. But U.S. Army files published by WikiLeaks documented that 150 innocent Afghans and Pakistanis had been captured by bounty hunters or were victims of tribal feuding. I think there was a, a, a growing recognition that the, the wrong people were in there. Among them was former Al Jazeera cameraman Sami al-Hajj, held for six years before his release without charge. The George Bush administration released or transferred more than 500 detainees to other countries. A number of them, by various estimates, 5 to 30 percent, went on to engage in hostile acts. One of the reasons that Barack Obama ordered the prison shut down within his presidency's first year. For many years, it's been clear that the detention facility at Guantanamo Bay does not advance our national security. It undermines it. Yet Obama has also been blamed for not releasing as many inmates as he could have done. The president didn't have to fight every detainee case that came to court. And if he hadn't fought these cases, it would have made it a lot easier for him to transfer these men out. As Obama prepares to leave the White House, 55 detainees remain in Guantanamo. Way, His successor, way, Donald Trump, says he'll not only keep the prison open, but add to its population. Meanwhile, the war in Afghanistan raged on, and the weapons used against American forces were often American weapons given to the Afghans two decades earlier when the Soviet Union occupied the country. It never went well when foreigners invaded Afghanistan, and by 2007, when Charlie Wilson's war came out, more and more people were asking why Afghanistan had been under the control of the Taliban to begin with, and why the Taliban was shooting American soldiers with American guns. Jumping forward a few years, a crisis in the already bad relationship between the U.S., Europe, and Iran could be seen to be out of the blue for someone who wasn't around and aware during the Carter-Reagan years. And by 2011, tensions between the U.S. and Iran were very high. Populist hardliner Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, who was president of Iran from 2005 to 2013, had consolidated his power by stoking anti-American, anti-Israel sentiment and ramping up Iran's nuclear program. Iran hawks in the U.S. were advocating an invasion. And if you look at a map where you'll see Iraq on one side and Afghanistan on the other, you can see why Iran would not be paranoid to consider that a strong possibility. But the U.S. and Israel's most effective operation was non-military 
releasing a worm into Iran's nuclear computer system. So a nonviolent solution to a violent threat was yet another opportunity for the West to tisk-tisk the emotional other, the East, Islam, Iran. And while Argo would have been in production long before this happened, in November 2011, Iranian student protesters stormed the British embassy in Tehran in retaliation for sanctions tied to Iran's nuclear program and an eerie echo of the storming of the American embassy all those years earlier. So again, what are those stories that Americans told themselves after 9-11 that these three movies are challenging? Well, the first is that the United States was an innocent victim of terrorist violence that really came out of nowhere. Tied to that was the public perception that this was a uniquely violent moment. That story then led to another one, that revenge for the attacks would be a productive use of American might, that a war on terror, one might call it, was warranted and would be successful. So in their own way, the three films suggest that American ignorance about other cultures leads to bad policies. Huh. So Munich is about an Israeli operation, but the audience is American. And while Spielberg gives a nod to the Palestinian perspective, it certainly falls short on acknowledging decades of dehumanization. Just as Affleck, in his quick intro to the history, can't possibly explain the brutality of the Shah's regime in the short time he assigns to it. Now, I think Charlie Wilson's war is actually pretty good at showing the Afghans were nothing more than pawns in the Cold War. You know, Steven Spielberg did a lot of press for Munich in which he does distinguish between the motives of the PLO and the Euro-terrorism of the 1970s with the mass casualty apocalyptic ends of Al-Qaeda. There is no equivalence. But Spielberg understands that the essence of terrorism in the modern age is spectacle. The 1972 Olympic massacre and 9-11 were designed to achieve maximum terror in a global audience. Terrorism is symbolic political violence, and even if the motives and methods have changed, the visual component is the same. Yes, and the 1979 Iranian Revolution and the storming of the U.S. embassy there can't really be classified as terrorism, but the spectacle was equally momentous. Both Argo and Munich want to remind us of the power of the moving image to instill fear, prompt action, and counteraction. And Charlie Wilson's war reminds American audiences that Afghanistan was once synonymous with a celebrated Cold War victory, perhaps the death blow to the Soviet Union in the late 1980s. This same victory, though, laid the groundwork for the Taliban's control over the entire country and al-Qaeda's safe haven in the same mountains that the Mujahideen were using to torment Soviet occupiers. So the three films are produced in the wake of 9-11 and the eternal wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. They were commercial and critical successes, but beneath the A-list casts and directors is a warning. Actions have consequences, sometimes lasting decades. I think all three movies critique the cycle of violence, a terrorist act, and the counter-terrorist response can perpetuate. Argo and Charlie Wilson's War highlight the long legacy of covert operations that reinforce hatred of the United States. Argo reveals how one covert action, 
1953 coup empowering the Shah of Iran requires decades later the wacky rescue mission that's at the heart of the film. And I don't know about you, but another thing I've noticed is how all three of these movies are weirdly pro-clandestine services and even off-the-books clandestine actions. It's interesting to note that all of these liberal directors, writers, and producers still just love a good caper. Even when, even though, even if the caper is covert, unsanctioned, and, oh, by the way, unconstitutional. Yeah, I think you're right that it does have a pro-clandestine kind of image to these films. But in another way, they portray, you know, establishment agency functionaries like the John Slattery character or, you know, even Brian Cranston, who's a nice guy, but not very imaginative in Argo, that these are, um, they're either incompetent or elitist or both. And so you can kind of uh, get on the side of a Gust or a Tony Mendez because even though they're part of a clandestine service, they're outsiders looking in. So we have these working class types taking on the old elite guard of, of institutions that, that have failed us in the past. And maybe that's how the, the liberal Hollywood types can get away with telling these great stories about capers, even if they come from, you know, the clandestine world. Yeah, here's a, a clip of Affleck's Tony Mendez trying to convince his rightly terrified charges, these people who really are, you know, little more than the person behind the, the glass at the desk at the DMV, um, to trust him in his ability to coach them in their um, their cover stories and guide them from the Canadian embassy residence through Tehran, through the airport, and on to safety in the midst of this uh, revolutionary moment. So here's that clip. This is what I do. I get people out. And I've never left anyone behind. I wish I could believe you, Mr. Harkins. My name is Tony Mendez. I'm from New York. My father worked construction. My mother teaches elementary school. I have a wife and a 10-year-old son. You play along with me today. I promise you, I will get you out tomorrow. Yeah, you got you got a very competent and very cool Mendez. Uh, really convincing these people, and it's it's impressive. Now, what we have in our next clip is we absolutely have to play it because it's Philip Seymour Hoffman, who we miss terribly, playing Gust, chewing out his boss, who is John, played by John Slattery, representing an era of the CIA that really looked down on foreigners and, and immigrants in particular at a time when you think you would want those people in in the CIA, and 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 he's the opposite of Mendez here in some ways. He's rude, he's crude, but he's going to get the job done. So let's take a listen to a, in a, a clash of cultures here. The elite Ivy League type of CIA officer represented by Slattery and Gust, your working class Greek immigrant. 
Yes. Does this look all right? It's fine. Thank I you. I can sand it down a little. I, I don't know. No fucking idea who this yeah, guy is. He is here to fix the glass that you broke the last time you were here. Could you just excuse us for a second? Yes. There. Tell me to go fuck myself, and I'm supposed to apologize. Yeah. You break my window. I'm supposed the to The Helsinki job was mine. The Helsinki job was not yours. If it was yours, you'd be in Helsinki. Alan Wolf stood in the office. Alan Wolf is no longer yeah, the director. Was on the Alan books. Wolf is no longer the director of European operations. He does not make those appointments I do. Promises were made. Not by me. I've been with the company for 24 years. I was posted in Greece for 15. Papandreou wins that election if I don't help the junta take him prisoner. I've advised and armed the Hellenic army. I've neutralized champions of communism. I've spent the past three years learning Finnish, which should come in handy here in Virginia, and I'm never ever sick at sea. So I want to know why I'm not going to be your Helsinki station chief. Your course. Excuse me. For Helsinki, I need someone with diplomatic skills. You don't have them. Is that right? That is right, and I don't know why the hell I didn't fire you when you broke my fucking window. Oh, yes, sure you do, Cravely. The 3,000 agents Turner fired. Was that because they lacked diplomatic skills as well? You're referring to Admiral Stansfield Turner? Yeah, the 3,000 agents teaching every goddamn one of them first or second generation Americans. Was that because they lacked the proper diplomatic skills? Or did Turner not think it was a good idea to have spies who could speak the same language as the people they're fucking spying on? <laughs> well, I'm sorry, but you can hardly blame the director for questioning the loyalty to America of people that are just barely Americans in the first place. Yeah, well, I'd like to take a moment to review the several ways in which you're a douchebag. Get the fuck out of my office. Yes, sir. Before I end your career, asshole. Yes, sir. Yeah, my friend, I'm gonna need you for a second. God damn it! My loyalty? For 24 years, people have been trying to kill me. People know how. Now, do you think that's because my dad was a Greek soda pop maker, or do you think that's because I'm an American spy? Go fuck yourself, you fucking child. Oh, that's just, you know, every time I listen to that, it just makes me sad. Or, you know, just, it, it's terrible that he's gone. Um, the glass that you hear smashing there, of course, is him for the second time smashing the same window in John Slattery's office just to uh, make his point. And just to be clear about uh, part of what's going on is that the same thing that he's decrying in the early 80s, this snobbery about, uh, you know, who should be in the, in the, um, you know, the diplomatic corps and in the, the services and this distaste for anyone who can't sort of trace their lineage back to the Mayflower is really an extremely pointed critique of the situation in the aughts because the uh, the paranoia in covert um, intelligence services at that point was so high that right when you needed to have people who spoke the language, people who spoke the language with a specific regional dialect as opposed to some kind of generic formal Arabic that would give you away within two seconds, those people were not only deemed to be not acceptable for these services, but were in fact sometimes themselves put onto watch lists and 
um, potentially denied um, green cards, citizenship, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, of course, you know all of this. Yeah, I had the uh, distinct pleasure of being in the intelligence community during this time. I mean, I was a very lowly guy, but I actually got uh, uh, to work for um, a, a Muslim who was Indian, who knew all the languages, and even though he was born and raised in America, went to University of Michigan Law School, did all the right things, he was uh, politically attacked by by conservative media just by having a position in the Department of Homeland Security that uh, was deemed sensitive. But that's exactly the type of people you want. And, and so it, it, the U.S. intelligence community learned too late that, the, that what you want are recent immigrants and these language capabilities. And soon after they kind of, there was a purge, they had to go on a massive hiring spree in like the late 2000s to get these people all back. So yeah, you never learn your lesson here. And the CIA, for all of its positive press in some of these movies, uh, still is a deeply flawed institution with that that works on bureaucratic inertia. And I think, you know, a movie like Trial Wilson's War does get both sides of that. Um, maybe not the other, maybe not Argo as much, but certainly uh, Charlie Wilson's War does. Yeah, so what other uh, things do we want to uh, remind our listeners of or make sure that they have in mind if they decide that they want to go back and rewatch these movies or watch them for the first time? What else, for example, from Munich? Do you think that uh, people should be keeping in in mind, Brian? You know, when we're when we're preparing for this, I started to read some of Steven Spielberg's press from Munich because you know it's two thousand five. He two movies came out the same year from Spielberg. One was War of the Worlds, which in a later episode we'll talk about as being very much about nine eleven, uh, despite being the classic remake of a you know a remake of a classic science fiction film. But then and also Munich, and and he was really specific about comparing the terrorism of the 1970s to what uh, was going on in the 2000s. And I found a great quote from a a 2005 Guardian interview. So let me me read um, Spielberg's thoughts on this point about what's new and what's different about terrorism from the two eras, the 70s and the 2000s. So this is Spielberg. Quote, I don't think you can look at the Palestinian desire for a homeland in the same way you can look at al-Qaeda's desire for an Islamic world and their attacks on the Twin Towers. You can't speak of them in the same breath. But terrorism informs terrorism, and certainly the planners of the 9-11 attacks had to be aware of Munich when they plotted their arrival on the world stage. So if there's any linkage at all, it's the way terrorism is demonstrated before the cameras. End quote. That's a director talking, wouldn't you say, Leah? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is a, a definitely a, a director appreciating the power of the image and also the power of a sustained image. Because I think that one of the things that uh, is also the case across all three of these movies is how how long standing how ongoing the representation, the visual representations of those threats were. Because, you know, we've mentioned a couple of times Euroterrorism, and I think it's worthwhile to remind our listeners that in the 1970s, there was a whole uh, kind of – 
like it was all the rage. Uh, there were a whole bunch of European or based organizations that used terrorism, uh, usually in the form of things like hijacking planes and and then sort of forcing them to land somewhere, like the raid on Entebbe, or, you know, the, 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 the um, hijacking of, uh, of a flight that eventually is taken and landed at Entebbe Airport, where you then also have a Mossad um, uh, uh, action to uh, to rescue them, but you also there's there's a number of others, and so there's this there's this real sense uh, first in the '60s with the violence attached to anti-war protests, uh, American uh, efforts to not only get out of Vietnam but also to sort of create a more just world, but to do it through getting uh, people's attention with violence. That then that con- continues into the 1970s. And so this idea that uh, 9-11 was this sort of a uniquely violent moment just really isn't the case. It The, the suicide bomber might have been a new development and the, and the, as Spielberg says, the the idea of sort of creating the global caliphate, that, that sort of thing was, was perhaps new. But really, it had not... It, it didn't come out of nowhere. And I think that, you know, then in, in Argo, there's this, there's similarly this, uh, you know, like, okay, he does make this nod towards the, the Shah and what came before so that there is this kind of, you know, lefty Hollywood nod to, well, you know, we brought this on ourselves. But that doesn't necessarily mean that there was a huge amount of time spent on the fact that all of this stuff had been going on for a long time, and also that a lot of it had been perpetrated by Westerners, by Europeans, by Americans. You know, I think that really Charlie Wilson's war does the best job of the three of them of really getting into how... Every day, how kind of commonplace this was. There's even this great line that Joanne Herring has where she asks Charlie Wilson, of all of the covert wars, of, yeah. you know, is this the most successful? I mean, like she just sort of says, she's just sort of asking like, you know, well, we all have, you know, we've been, you know, um, we've been undertaking these covert wars forever. Um, is this the most successful one, Charlie? <laughs> and, she, and she starts listing them off as if they were, you know, positive things like grenade, not a grenade, sorry, like El Salvador and Nicaragua and Chile. I mean, think horror stories, absolute horror stories that are stains on on you know the CIA and America's history. She's at, she's she's counting them down like, okay, this one was good, this one was worse. Why aren't we doing the same thing in Afghanistan? And and it is an interesting scenario that we do look back on. Afghanistan in the eighties as a victory, as something that we, you know, we can be proud of, uh, because it does somehow does not have the same, you know, stench of, of all of the CIA's activities in Latin America, for example, that she was so quickly, uh, running down as, as a positive success stories. And so, and there is, you know, with all of Charlie Wilson's wars, uh, the, with all the, the good things about the movie, it, it is kind of rather not, Blythe about about the the long history of the CIA's uh, covert 
wars and and just how much blood is shed in them. And there's a lot of blood shed in you know against Soviet troops that uh, they certainly have not forgotten. <laughs> You know, if we're going to talk about our recommendations of these films, you know, what is it that we recommend and what we want um, people to keep in mind as they're watching them? I would say that that of the three movies, um, my favorite uh, is Charlie Wilson's War. I could just watch that movie over and over and over again. But I think that um, one of the things that we could say to our listeners is – uh, you know, keep in mind all of these things that that we're saying because in the movie they are treated quite blithely, precisely because all of these things were considered to be excusable sins in the name of Cold War victory, and so if the uh, our listeners can view the movie with that in mind, then the humor uh, of Sorkin and um, Nichols can be understood to be as black humor as it was intended. And that, I think, is a really crucial thing about watching that movie. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think that's why the ending is so effective. You know, unlike well, Munich, where Spielberg has to bash you over the head with the message by having the 9-11 towers in the background. Uh, with with um, Gust's speech at the end, he's really setting you up for that. You know, in this moment, they're at a big party. They're all, they're drunk. They're happy. They're in the middle of DC in the late eighties. It's a warm summer night and they think they've just, you know, they've won. And Gus is telling him, Charlie Wilson and us, really it's us, that this is just the beginning. You know, when he starts throwing in the word Kandahar and, um, the, you know, they're not calling them the Taliban yet, but we know that's who they mean, that this this is what we're living with now. And this, this all glory is fleeting is what Gus is telling us. Um, so, yeah, I, I agree. It's my favorite of the three as well. And my recommendation is just to, to note what's happening in the rest of this podcast is take a good look at, at Spielberg uh, because he's going to be all over this podcast uh, series because he can't, it's unavoidable. He's, he loves taking on historical topics. And, and I would say, look at Munich uh, a little differently. You know, whatever you think of him as being safe, predictable, technically accomplished, uh, but not always deep or reflective. I think Munich is interesting for its, its moral ambiguity. Uh, and one of the, critiques of the film, you know, it didn't resonate with as many people as a Spielberg film normally does is because it isn't black and white. Um, and, and I think it's to his credit that he at least tried to communicate that and, and we'll see him succeed or fail in different ways in some other films we talk about in, in Lies Agreed Upon. Yeah. And it's interesting that Argo, which actually won Best Picture, is one of those films that it's very good you can see uh, what he's trying to do and that he does it very competently, very efficiently. It's very well structured. The setup is actually very good. The way that he, you know, back to what we were talking about before, the way that he uses news footage to not only tell the backstory, but then to therefore remind the viewers of Argo that for people – in 
1979 and 80, they would be seeing all of this stuff on the nightly news and that they would understand all, you know, kind of the broader context more readily uh, than the viewers of the movie in, um, you know, 2012. Um, But at the same time, at the end of the day, it's, the, the movie's kind of like it, it's it's ephemera like it really does not like i would say sure watch argo it's a lovely way to spend a couple of hours but it doesn't really stick somehow and i don't quite know why that is but it's really interesting to see and and, and my only thought is that it is trying to kind of feed the viewer their medicine sugar-coated by telling this caper story that is couched within this much more uh, serious political moment. And I think at the end of the day, he leans too much towards caper and not enough towards the, the context within which that caper is happening. Yeah, it is. A, it's a it's an enjoyable film. It's the capers front first. You know, they put it forward first. In a way, you know, Charlie Wilson goes back and forth between the two. But yeah, and I, and a lot of read, I read a lot of good reviews of Argo that said the same thing. It's like, it's great, but it's kind of forgettable. Yet, you know, it's technically well done. And maybe that's you know what what uh, is the, the true legacy of the film in the long run. It's it's um it's a good it's a good yarn. And I think maybe the other two films have a little more depth to them you know so we kind of answered the question or attacked the question how did we get here our next episode takes on uh, another important institution journalism and so episode three is going to look at uh, what we might call heroic journalism after 9-11 this episode was written by Leah Parody and Brian Krim it was also edited by Leah and the theme music was written by Mike Patterson Check out our website, livesagreedupon.com, for more on each episode, including clips and links to the films discussed. Be sure to subscribe to get this excellent free content in your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at livesagreedupon. That's at lies underscore upon. 